16 Georgia fake electors say they are now targets in Fawny Willis's investigation of Trump election interference out of Fulton County, Georgia, will discuss. The Secret Service admits that its text messages were indeed deleted as part of a routine purge that just so happened to be right around January 6th of 2021. We'll talk about that. The Steve Bannon contempt of Congress trial is underway. A jury has been picked. Opening statements are now over and witnesses are being called. Karen Agnifilo and I will break that down. The Respect for Marriage Act to codify the constitutional right to same-sex marriage and interracial marriage is introduced in the House of Representatives. All Democrats vote in favor. 157 Republicans vote against. And people like Marco Rubio are now coming out in the Senate saying they will be vociferously against voting for this bill. Karen and I will talk about the absurdity coming from the GQP, those radical fascists out there. And then we'll talk about, speaking of radical fascists, the January 6th hearing exposing radical fascists coming up prime time this Thursday, broadcast live right here on the Midas Media Network. Star witnesses Sarah Matthews, former Deputy Press Secretary, and Matt Pottinger, Matt Pottinger, Deputy National Security Advisor. We will talk about what to expect in that hearing, who will be leading that hearing. Karen Friedman Agnifilo, Ben Micellis on the midweek edition of Legal AF. Karen, I love when I get to fill in for Michael Popak, whether it's the midweek, whether you get to fill in for Michael Popak. I really enjoy doing this show with you, and I'm glad that we can do it today. I am too. It's so much fun. How are you? Like the hat. I am doing, I'm doing great. Um, So let's just get right into it, huh? Let's talk about the Georgia fake electors, Um, 16 of them. We've talked on previous legal AFs. A secret meeting was held in the Georgia Capitol building where this kind of cloak and dagger meeting was held where the Republicans, despite knowing that Biden won in Georgia, despite it being certified, basically say, we appoint ourselves as the electors. They send their slate to the National Archives because the overall conspiracy here, as has been exposed by the January 6th committee and our coverage here as well on the Midas Media Network, is that Trump wanted Pence to declare a doubt in the election and to have the fake electors replace the real electors and appoint Trump emperor. And when Pence didn't do it, Trump called the mob to go into the Capitol to stop the counting of the real electors so the fake electors could then be counted. And these fake electors out of Georgia now have been revealed to have been targets of the investigation by Fawny Willis. As we know, there's a grand jury that's taking place. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And the way we know these fake electors have been uh, called out as targets is they filed a motion to quash the subpoena. Um, This was a formal document in the Superior Court in Fulton County. And they said that we've been told that we were targets. Karen, so what's going on here in Fulton County? So there was a motion uh, yesterday, July 19th, that Fonnie Willis uh, filed. It was called the opposition to the motion to disqualify a prosecutor. And so I guess they had filed a motion trying to say that she's political and she shouldn't be able to conduct this investigation. And they basically uh, asserted kind of they, they asserted 
um, two reasons. One was that she donated money to um, one of the 16 targets who's running for office. She donated to the opposition and, uh, and they were saying, therefore, she has a conflict of interest. And that was sort of the main, the main thrust of this. And so she said, look, you know, that's not true. I don't have to recuse myself. And I, sh you know, just donating money isn't, you know, doesn't disqualify somebody. And so, you know, she sort of spells out what the law is there to be recused and taken off the case. And that, that's sort of an extraordinary request, by the way, to remove a prosecutor from a prosecution and and it's called a, a disqualification or a recusal and they would have had to, they'd have to put another prosecutor in place but it's just clear to me that it's another delay tactic and another tactic that avoids talking about what's actually happening and just trying to fight the prosecutor because they don't like the fact that it's clear that she's got a real investigation here and it's it's heating up and it's clearly now getting to the higher echelons and it's getting closer and closer to Trump. I mean, I think that that's what's clear here, that that's what's happening. And, um, you know, they're, they're making the usual arguments saying, basically that, oh, we were just putting these electors in place just in case, you know, and, and, um, you know, that's sort of what their defense is. But it's clear now, as you said, they're a target. And that, you know, I think that these individuals and Trump are getting closer and closer being guilty of criminal solicitation of an election fraud, uh, which is a, a Georgia state penal code violation. And, and, and in that crime, they have to prove that that you had an intent that another person commits a misdemeanor and then you solicit or cause that person to engage in such misdemeanor conduct. And it's a, a one to three year um, statute, you know, uh, you, you'd get one to three years in, in jail if that happens, you know, and that's, that's sort of one of the charges. Of course, she also said she's looking at RICO and all these other, you know, these racketeering and other uh, charges, but, you know, it's clear that, that her investigation, you know, she's got this special grand jury that's supposed to write a report, but it's clear that she's also has this, she's very clearly also looking at bringing charges as well. So, so that's sort of what's happening there. And, and hopefully she'll bring charges and hopefully she'll bring charges quickly. It seems to be from what I can see, the only one who there, where there's hope to bring charges against the um, against Trump anytime soon. And, Trump, if he's elected or any of his other sort of cronies are elected, federal, you know, he can only pardon federal crimes. You can't pardon a state crime. Now, obviously, if there's a, a Republican governor, they could pardon him in Georgia. Um, but I, I think that's, you know, that that's hopefully she's moving forward on that and that'll happen quickly. You mentioned there's a special grand jury that's been impaneled in Fulton County. The process in Fulton County, for those listening, is that the special grand jury prepares a report and recommendation, and then another grand jury would actually be impaneled that would actually do the indictment. The special grand jury doesn't indict, it prepares a recommendation and a report for the indictment. Two other developments out of the special grand jury, one involving Lindsey Graham. It was, it's been misreported, though, that Lindsey Graham agreed to testify before the grand jury. That's not accurate. What Lindsey Graham agreed to do, he filed what's called a motion to quash, or basically a quash to stop, a motion to stop or have a judge 
you know, terminate the subpoena that he's been that was issued to him to testify before the grand jury. And he filed that motion in the South Carolina federal court. And what Fawny Willis argued is one, the wrong court um, that should be filed in the Georgia federal court, uh, if if anywhere. Um, And number two, Lindsey Graham uh, really doesn't, uh, hasn't even been served yet with the subpoena. So it's premature for him to even, you know, make this motion to quash in the first place until he's been served. A deal was worked out where Lindsey Graham agreed to accept service of the subpoena. All that basically means is he can challenge it in the Georgia federal court. It does not mean, though, that he's agreed to testify as some people who have been misreported. But the process starts where he's now able to challenge it as opposed to delay it. And then some other news coming out of New York. um, uh, You had Rudy Giuliani, who was served a subpoena out of New York, and there was an order to show cause out of the New York Supreme Court. It's weird. New York Supreme Court. We talk about on Legal AF the name Supreme Court, you think it's the highest court, but in New York, that's the court of appeal. The trial court's called the Supreme Court. But anyway, Rudy Giuliani just didn't show up uh, today to today's hearing regarding the subpoena. So he was ordered by the New York judge to show up and to testify in the Georgia proceedings. But that also doesn't necessarily mean that he can't raise objections, meritless objections, like attorney-client privilege or the other bogus objections, executive privilege and the silly objections that they've tried to make. But nonetheless, it shows that Fawny Willis is proceeding very, very, very aggressively. Now, Karen Agnifilo, for people who don't know, you were the number two uh, in the Manhattan DA's office. You oversaw you know, thousands uh, of employees in the Manhattan DA's office. Um, and so you have insight in, uh, as a prosecutor. So what is your view? How do you feel that Fawny Willis is doing just as one prosecutor watching Fawny Willis? I think she's doing great. I think she's moving forward. And I think it's clear that she's, you know, it's, it's very tough. And I know this because I was there when, uh, when, we were investigating um, Trump. It's very tough to investigate a former sitting president. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of outside people who have a lot of opinions about what you're doing. And there's a lot that the, the Trump people are very aggressive, you know, and they have a playbook of delay and make arguments and push things along and hope that things either get better over time or hope that, um, that uh, with time, as time passes, you know, that the, the political winds will change. And, and, and you have to really be, stay focused and tune all of that out and, and really look at the evidence wherever it leads. And, and that's very clear that that's what Fonnie Willis is doing. And, you know, she's a brand new DA. She, she hasn't been there that long. And so I think it's, I think she's doing a really good job. It's not easy to do uh, what she's doing, but I think she's doing a great job and she's moving quickly and and she's she's definitely I mean look it helps too that that it's on tape right you know the the phone call is is recorded right that that find the 12,000 votes so that helps too and that's fantastic and but I I think um I think she's doing a great job as a prosecutor and I I really have a lot of respect for what she's doing oh I couldn't agree more I want to also talk about 
the Secret Service uh, text messages that were ultimately deleted. Before talking, though, about the Secret Service text message, though, I do want to get your take, Karen, on the memo that was circulated by Merrick Garland. This memo that was circulated by Merrick Garland that uh, because it is an election year, any uh, prosecutions that could be perceived as political should shall require approval of a supervisor or ultimately require the approval of the attorney general. Now, this was revealed in Rachel Maddow, and it was basically reported in a way as saying, oh, here's Merrick Garland saying that there's not going to be any prosecution of Trump or Trump's inner circle because this is 2022. This is, you know, Mueller all over again or even worse. Here you have, uh, you know, or people are saying, well, Merrick Garland is also following Bill Barr's lead and the Bill Barr memo. And how could you follow Bill Barr's, you know, partisan memo? You know, and so this is horrible. You know, and I tweeted out right away. I mean, I, I had to take a step back and I had to read the memo because I felt like I had seen seen this memo before. And I did. I mean, first off, this memo was dated May of 2022. It was like May 25th or May 22nd of 2022. So it was already out before these January 6th committee hearings, number one. But number two, since that date, we've seen the ramping up, not the ramping down of DOJ activity with respect to the insurrectionists. I mean, we've seen them issue search warrants on John Eastman and of Jeff Clark, you know, people who were acting as Trump's closest advisors, as as Trump's lawyers. So it's not like they're shying away from getting who could be closer to the person than the person's personal lawyers and the person's representatives. And the DOJ has, has issued search warrants um, there. So I think there actually has been a ratcheting up. But then when I looked at this, this is the same memo that circulated every year around election time. It references the previous AG um, at the time, you know, each of them reference the previous dictate by the previous AG. And then the, you just basically initial it at the top. But there was nothing here in this memo that to me, it was just a generic boilerplate memo saying, you know, you should get the advice of a supervisor or at the highest level, the attorney general, if you're going to be doing any political prosecutions as a prosecutor. Isn't that just basically stating what the rules are anyway? I mean, when you were at the prosecutor's office and you were Cy Vance's number two, could a line DA just follow, could file a lawsuit against, you know, a top political person without getting approvals? I mean, isn't just saying, remember, you work in an organization which requires approvals. What was your take on that? So my, you know, at first I had the reaction that I think a lot of people had, which was, oh, great. Now that means they're not going to bring the case. Right. Um, but then, as you said, once you sort of think more about it, it's absolutely clear that uh, it's just a reminder. I mean, don't forget the Department of Justice has U.S. attorney's offices all over the country. Every single state has at least one U.S. attorney's office and some in New York, we have four. And so there are literally thousands of prosecutors all over the country who work with FBI, Secret Service, you know, Homeland Security, all, all the various different agencies. And so there's a lot going on. And you don't want all of a sudden in an election year, some federal prosecutor, some office somewhere 
bringing charges that could influence an election, certainly without the Department of Justice knowing about it and without the attorney general knowing about it. So it's just, I think, a, a clearly just a, as you said, um, right before an election, a management tool to manage this number of prosecutors and agents and people who are who are doing their job and who are, are looking at, at various scenarios. And so I think it was just that kind of re reminder. Um, but there were a few, there were definitely a few, um, um, a few things that are, are not, I wouldn't say concerning, but, you know, look, politics should ha have no, um, ha should have no place in a prosecution ever, you know, and prosecutors like to say, you know, that we, we go where the evidence leads without fear or favor. So you will prosecute your friends, your enemies, and anyone equally if justice requires that and if you committed a crime. And so, you know, I did think, um, you know, and just going back to the Fonnie Willis thing, you know, she shouldn't have donated probably to somebody's opponent just because you have to also then be able to investigate that person and not saying you wouldn't, but there could be the appearance of impropriety. And so I think as a prosecutor, you just have to be super careful and that you never let politics infect a, a investigation for exactly this reason is you don't want it to look political. It's, it's justice is supposed to be blind and it's supposed to be something that is um, meted out without fear or favor. So I do think this memo just reminds people of that, that just this is an election year. And, you know, look, that one of the most famous kind of I, I guess um, violation of this is what you know Jim Comey did and what the effect it had on Hillary Clinton. You know, and it's just complicated. What do you do? You have this information. Do you say it? Do you not say it? Do you leave it alone until after the election? But then people will say, "Oh, you're treating them differently because you like the person, or you're treating them differently because you don't like the person." So politics, either way, you're always going to have someone criticizing you if the person happens to be a politician or a high level government you know, person. Because again, if it's somebody that you support, they'll say you're, you know, you're treating them better or differently because you support them. And if, you, if it's the opponent or the, someone you don't support, they'll say you're going after them and it's a, a political witch hunt, which is what, you know, what Trump likes to say. And so, you know, there's all these like conspiracy theorists that said, oh, well, he issued it now and then that'll make Trump declare sooner. So that way, you know, it'll trigger this memo. And I, you know, I, I think people are reading too much into it. I think, as you said, it's just business as usual reminder that, you know what, if we got a case and we're investigating a case against Trump or, or any of these people, that it just, we need to make sure that that the attorney general and the people, you know, at the highest levels, A, know about it and B, that things are coordinated. And, you know, you also don't want anyone stepping on each other's toes, right? You know, so like, if, what if what if two people are investigating the exact same thing? I mean, it, you know, that would make no sense either. So I just think that for many, many, many reasons, this was a, a sound policy. We should have a policy and it doesn't mean anything one way or another. I think it's, it's very clear that the investigation is ramping up and that the attorney general is very, very involved. And also Lisa Monaco, his number two, uh, I think was, was speaking at another, some other kind of public event yesterday and was asked by the reporters, 
Um, and she confirmed that the investigation is continuing and that they're going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. So I think this memo, people are, are making a lot of it because I think that tensions are high and people and, and the January 6th committee is doing a fantastic job at, at showing the, you know, the steps that would have to take be taken for a prosecution. And I think people are waiting with bated breath for there to be a prosecution. And so any little thing that, that Merrick Garland does, even if it's business as usual, people are going to try to read into it. But I, I do think that's all that's happening with that memo. Yeah. To be clear, it is a generic, and as you said, it's a generic boilerplate letter that's sent every election year. And some people point out, well, the one thing that's different is that it mentioned Bill Barr. But here's the thing. Your criticism of Bill Barr is that he ran the DOJ as a highly partisan entity to attack his political enemies. So by your own logic, if you reference Bill Barr's destruction of the norms to go after political enemies, isn't that the very thing that you want Merrick Garland to do? So by citing Bill Barr, isn't Merrick Garland basically saying this guy abused it for the wrong reasons, but went after political enemies. So I should be able to use it for the right reason to go after. I mean, if you go to that logic. So that's where I don't understand. Well, he mentioned Bill Barr, but your criticism of Bill Barr was that he's too partisan. And then your criticism of Merrick Garland is that he's not going after Trump. And I genuinely do think, Karen, that the criticisms of Merrick Garland are overblown. I'd like it to go quicker, but I'd like a lot of things in life to go quicker. You know, sometimes I don't want to wait for that great lasagna to cook for however long. I want to just eat the lasagna right away. You know, sometimes I want to run a marathon in one minute. I don't want to have to do it in multiple hours. You know, sometimes it takes time to actually get the thing done. And when you're doing the most significant prosecution in the history of United States of America, it is going to take a little bit of time. And that's what's taking place. And ultimately, if he doesn't do, you know, a prosecution of Trump, I will absolutely be disappointed. But the prosecution of Trump doesn't end in 2022. I mean, there is a statute of limitations that takes place, but we're not even close to any of the statute of limitations being blown while Merrick Garland is climbing the ladder. But Karen, there are things that are frustrating this climbing of the ladder, and it's most frustrating when it's people who we're supposed to trust the most, like the Secret Service. I mean, this is something that really shatters your trust in the heart of what's supposed to be important, important institutions. Now, we've read a number of, you know, books and exposés that have come out um, in the past, uh, you know, you know, 10, 20 years on the Secret Service and the problems within the Secret Service, the corruption within the Secret Service. But to learn, we learned this from an inspector general within the Department of Homeland Security who brought it to the attention of the House of Representatives. And the inspector general's job is to do just that, to serve as the watch person for various entities and to report to the House Oversight Committees regarding you know, things that are going wrong. And he said, um, this inspector general, that the Secret Service deleted their messages in January of 2021. 
And the Secret Service said, oh, no, we gave you all of the records. Well, what about your text messages? Oh, oh, we gave you everything but the text messages. And what happened was we happened just to decide we were going to purge all of our systems right after January 6th, right around January 20th. We made the call purging all systems. Now, one of the things the Secret Service is tasked with, Karen, is cybersecurity. So there's no backups. There's no copies. They don't preserve their... Uh, their text messages. And then the Secret Service has played a major role in what the January 6th committee has been discussing, because we've heard the stories about how the Secret Service approached approached Pence on January 6th and told Pence to come in the car and try to you know, take him away from the Capitol building. And Pence says, I'm not leaving the Capitol building. I don't know where you're going to take me. You're going to put me in Alaska? Where, where, where am I going to go so that you can do this uh, you know, Trump elector fraud scheme that Trump's trying to pull off to do his coup. And then we also heard about Trump, you know, attacking Secret Service members and Secret Service members leaked and said, oh, that didn't happen. But then other Capitol Police officers, no, no, we saw that happen. Well, here we have the opportunity just to know what happened. And there is obviously, I don't like to use the word cover up loosely, but there's a cover up going on. They covered up the Secret Service, what took place and their involvement in January 6th. And now there's almost where the January 6th committee, you know, had the hearings focused on these discrete issues. There's going to need to be hearings, subpoenas and investigations on what's going on with the Secret Service. What do you think? You know, look, it's. It, it, this is something that can be known, right? If the, if somebody wants to investigate this, they can figure this out fairly quick. Nothing happens fast in government. I can assure you of that. So them saying we were migrating to a new system, that is something that would have had to have occurred over a long period of time. They would have had to have chosen the system and probably put out a request for proposals to purchase the system. And then they enter into contracting for the system. And then they go into a whole, a whole sort of migration schedule because the Secret Service, again, is all over the country. When are we going to do this? I mean, if they really want to find out if this was accidental or not, this purging of these text messages. That, that's one of the easiest things you could figure out because like I said, nothing, nothing happens fast in government when it comes to things like this. So, you know, I, before I, I say whether or not I think this is um, fishy, I'd like to have the answers to that question and that is eminently knowable. Um, but as you said, there have been some sort of strange, you know, like th there's been scandals in the Secret Service and the Secret Service, unfortunately, is their reputation is is slightly tarnished. And and that makes me really disappointed because I've worked with the Secret Service. And in addition to protecting the the presidency and um, and former presidents, you know, the Secret Service is has one of the most preeminent cyber crime and cyber investigation lab in all of law enforcement. I mean, they do all of the identity theft, federal identity theft and federal cyber crime. And, and it's what the work they do is extraordinary. I mean, it's a really, um, really res just respectable, excellent organization with fantastic service members. However, one of some of the things we're seeing like this is really disappointing. And even if the migration was planned, even if you are law enforcement 
you are the secret service. You investigate things and you know how important things like text messaging, WhatsApp, Signal, and all those other ways that people communicate are because that's what you do for a living. You know, they knew that the January 6th insurrection is probably the single most uh, significant crime in in recent DOJ history with the thousands of people or more than a thousand people who have been prosecuted at this point. They know how important those text messages are on January 5th and January 6th. And so I find it preposterous that even if this was something that was planned, that they wouldn't, somebody wouldn't have said, hey, you know what, this is a significant congressional and law enforcement investigation. We should take pains to preserve absolutely everything in during this migration because that involves January 6th and January and the days leading up to it. So I, that to me is um, suspect and frankly doesn't pass, you know, the smell test to me. This, these, this is, these are the cyber crime investigators that exist. They, they know better. And so I don't believe um, that somebody didn't, didn't do something like that. And, and, you know, one other thing is didn't, doesn't, What's his name? Onorado, Tony Onorado was he Ornato, worked for the yeah. Secret Service. He works for the Secret Service, right? Yep. I mean, so that's another thing. He the that's the other thing that I find very, very fishy. You know, Cassidy Hutchinson was talking all about Tony Ornato and his involvement on January 6th. And you know, he he's a Secret Service agent, he's a public servant, and he crossed over and became a political appointee working for Trump and stayed with the Secret Service at the same time, I've never heard of such a thing. You know, you, you're, you're one or the other. Either you're a, a civilian political appointee or you're a government Secret Service agent who is a civil servant and, and it shouldn't matter if, you're, if, if the president is a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, your duty is the same to protect them and to work with them and pr- protect the country. So which one is it? And so he, he kept his Secret Service status. He was a political appointee. And then now he's back in the Secret Service. So I don't know. There's a bunch of weird things going there that going on there that, you know, I typically give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt because, as you said, I, you know, was in it for so long and and. And I, I, I have a very hard time criticizing law enforcement. It's not my nature. It's not my first. Um, and, I, and I find myself defending them a lot. I can't defend this. And I, I find it very tricky. And I, in fact, think this, this warrants um, more IG uh, involvement, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. In addition to um, Karen being a former DA in the Manhattan DA's office and, and essentially leading the office of Cy Vance's number two. I have the pleasure of working with Karen. We work at the same law firm, Garagos and Garagos. Uh, and the key advice we would give to corporate clients is that when litigation is reasonably anticipated, you have to preserve your records. You have to preserve your documents. And also organizations need to keep Um, absolutely need to make sure that they remain compliant with investigations, um, oversight, and not delete records, even where litigation is not reasonably anticipated, for example, and with public companies or, or even private companies that are regulated in certain sectors. So clearly, when January 6th, when an insurrection happens, when the first time in our history, something like that happens, the equivalent of is litigation reasonably to be likely 
should be triggered for the Secret Service. The, uh, a memo should be sent out with competent leadership that says everybody needs to preserve all records. This was uh, a, a, an event that scarred our nation, and we need to get to the bottom of it. Everyone needs to preserve their records, period. And it shocks me that a letter like that didn't go out. And not only did a letter and a mandate like that didn't go out, but the opposite. Hey, we're going to just delete all of our text messages and purge and go to a new system. January 6, 2021, notwithstanding. But I'm with you. We'll see what happens, Karen. And we will keep our legal AF audience updated there. Let's talk about the Bannon uh, contempt of Congress trial, which is underway. As I mentioned for the outset, a jury has now been picked. Opening statements are now over and witnesses are being called. The theatrics of Bannon's fascist corruption and his all that BS, that's not really what this case is about. And the prosecutors made clear in their opening uh, statement that this case is about, we gave him a subpoena and he didn't show up. This is about a guy who didn't show up on a day he was supposed to show up to. And Bannon's only defense that he's allowed to present is that the subpoena was the start of a negotiation of when he should show up. As I described on the weekend edition of Legal AF, that's like saying the uh, speed limit on a highway is really not a limit, but it is a negotiation between the driver and the cop of how long the drive of how fast the driver actually wants to oh it said 55 but i thought that was a negotiation i that i was going to go 105 miles per hour and so really this trial is pretty mundane when you think about it i mean they call a the, the witness being called by the prosecutor is a, a staff lawyer of the jan 6 committee who's the one who literally just issued the subpoena and the questions karen are just like did you issue the subpoena yes did it have a date on it yes did he show up no uh, was it a negotiation? No. All right. Thank you very much. Like that's the, that is the direct examination. I just did it for, for you. That's what this case is. And Bannon wants to eject all this political stuff into it. The judge isn't having it. There was some drama outside of the courtroom yesterday where Bannon uh, did the normal, oh, this is a witch hunt, pity me, blah, 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 blah. Prosecutors brought that to the attention of the judge. The judge said, this isn't a political trial. It's a trial about you not showing up for a subpoena and yet you had to show up. That's what it's about, period. What do you think is going on, Karen? Do you think Steve Bannon will actually testify? He has to testify. His only defense would about it being a negotiation. He'd kind of have to testify. So what, or what do you his think? Lawyer, so? Or his lawyer. So I have slightly... I actually think this is a tough case for the prosecution. I know that everybody else is saying this is a open and shut, easy case. As you just said, it's, you know, you didn't show up and therefore, um, and therefore you're guilty. I think it's a tough case for the prosecution. Um, and this is why. Every time, every single person who got a subpoena to testify before January 6th, but who then negotiated the terms of that. You know, I will give you these documents, but not those. I'll talk about the way Pat Cipollone did. I'll talk about things that happened, but I won't tell you things that the president said, because I think those are attorney client, or I'm not available on this date, but I can come that date, or I can't come this morning, I'll come this afternoon, or all the different times that there are negotiations post subpoena, and we all know they are. I mean. You issue a subpoena for a particular date and time. If somebody says I'm not available or whatever, then you do change it or you try to accommodate them or you negotiate the terms. So if I were Bannon, 
thank God I'm not, and I'm thank God I'm not representing him, but that's one of the things I would do. I would basically show that that's, first of all, it is a negotiation and they do it all the time. The second thing I would show is nobody ignored anything. Bannon hired a lawyer. The lawyer wrote dozens and dozens of letters and motions and fought and fought and fought and fought in court about whether it was an executive privilege, whether he had to go, all those things. That's the opposite of ignoring, right? That's actually fighting it. So if I were Bannon, I would say I, the last thing I did was ignore this. Um, in fact, I was doing everything I could to exercise my rights in court to try to fight it. And of course he's saying now I will do it. I think, you know, don't forget, all he has to do is convince one person on that jury to go his way, and then you have a hung jury, right? You have to, in a criminal case, you have to convince all people on that jury, I assume this is a 12-person jury, um, you know, you have to convince them all to, beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, of the fact that he's in contempt of Congress. And so all he has to do is convince one, and then he's got a hung jury, you know, I, that's, I think that's potentially what happens here because he can just, you know, it's beyond a reasonable doubt and he can sow a tiny bit of doubt in there. You know, Judge Nickel, who's a Trump appointee, largely, you know, cut the legs out from under him with the defenses, but he did leave him enough wiggle room. And they did say they're gonna, these letters that um, were written back and forth, they did say they're gonna put this, put this into evidence. And I think that's what they're gonna argue, that that's the opposite of ignoring a congressional subpoena. So I do think this is less open and shut than I, I realized I, I, I did some research this morning and nobody else is saying this but me. So I could be totally wrong on this and maybe my gut is totally wrong. But I, I, there's something about it that I just thought is, I just hope the prosecutor here is, doesn't get too comfortable and doesn't make this overly doesn't sort of say, oh, this is simple and this is open and shut, that they really sort of appreciate the fact that, that they still have to prove, um, prove beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, that kind of, that he, that he committed this crime. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I hope, I hope I'm, this is the one, one of the times I hope I'm hundred percent wrong. I hope you're wrong too. And, and, and also though, you know, Bannon would go on his podcast, though, and mock the committee and talk about not testifying and talk about how he was never going to show. And so I do think, though, Bannon's own words there, if they do want to introduce that, all of those kind of public statements. That's you know, true. Would I hope they do. Yeah. You know, would, would ultimately be used against him. You know, and at the end of the day, though, you know, all of those efforts that were made, though, still. I mean, he was, and this is where I disagree with you, though, because, you know, Bannon was ultimately adjudicated as being wrong. The fact that you file a bunch of bogus and BS motions where you lose, the fact that your lawyer writes a lot of letters, unless the letters, Karen, talk about negotiating a date or negotiating carve-outs for his testimony, I don't believe that's what the letters said. I believe all the negotiations where he's not going to show up because of executive privilege and his challenges were executive privilege. And the fact that he's a podcaster claiming executive privilege is a really absurd argument to make. And so you can go back to the example that I gave, which is about the 
the car that's speeding at going 110 miles per hour and says that I believed the speed limit of 55 was the beginning of negotiation, I could have my lawyer send a ton of letters to the police officer giving all of my theories about why it was a negotiation or why I can go 110 miles per hour or that I was immunized by the governor because I'm a podcaster on, on legal AF and therefore I can go 110 miles per hour. I could write all the batshit crazy letters that I want to write, but unless I'm actually negotiating for my testimony and the carve outs that I think are appropriate, there is no actual negotiation. It's just a bunch of gaslighting at the end of the day. And as I see what his only negotiation would have been, if you want to call it that, was what he did recently, which he could have done earlier. And if someone wanted to be nefarious and if Bannon was smart, he could have done what he did now, which was actually offer to testify, but then throughout the process, make the negotiation so onerous on the committee as to really negate the offer to testify in the first place. But at the very least, he could say, I'm negotiating. So what that whole maneuver was about recently when Bannon offered to testify was someone who was a smart legal advisor, though a nefarious one who's trying to come up with a plot to try to get him off, says, wait a minute, we really didn't negotiate at all. We just objected and we lost. So now let's say we can do it. So we can then argue that we actually are negotiating. But as the court held and as the Department of Justice you know, argued the conduct after the fact is not proof of like the fact we're, we're in trial now. So what you're what you're saying now doesn't cure the underlying crime. But I think that's 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 where I think where we have some disagreement. But I, I definitely I don't I don't, do dis I don't disagree. In fact, I agree with you. I guess the only place we disagree is that this is a simple open and shut case where you just say here was the date and he didn't show up. I think if the if the prosecution does all the things you just said, I think you're right. You get over the hurdle. I just think you have to be a little more. Um, I think there's just a little more than an open and shut um, prosecution here, which I'm sure they know and I'm sure they're doing. I just don't see it as simple as as everybody else. I do think you have to um, explain all of what exactly what you just said. I think you just gave the prosecution summation and um, I think it gets it over across the finish line. But I do think I, I do worry a little bit about it that if if because the opening statement was a little um, they did to me simplify it a little bit. And that's what I, that's what the only reason I was a little concerned, but maybe, maybe, the, maybe they'll get there. Um, anyway, that, that's just what I see as, 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 as potentially a problem. And like I said, they really only have to convince one person um, when you're, when you're the defense. And so that's, that's why it worries me a little bit because I, I could just see somebody um, buying, buying into that. I could see somebody buying that argument and then the jury hangs. Let's talk about the Respect for Marriage Act that was introduced by the House of Representatives. It passed, although many, many, many Republicans voted against it. I want to dig into that. Before doing that, I want to remind everybody, please make sure if you are a legal af -er, that you subscribe to Legal AF, not just on YouTube, but do me a favor right now before we hit these next two topics, go and subscribe to Legal AF wherever you get your audio. 
Um, I want to make sure that the audio audience is as consistent as rock star quality as the YouTube and the audio does great. I mean, we're usually, you know, in the top 50 for legal commentary, top 100 now for all news podcasts in the world. So it definitely does great. But I ask you, if you're a YouTube person, recommend this podcast to other um, people who listen to podcasts or listen to YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to YouTube, but please, please, please subscribe to the audio on the audio channel and just search for Legal AF wherever you get podcasts. If you have an iPhone, just search the podcast app, go to Legal AF, click subscribe. Um, or if you have on Spotify or wherever you get it, just subscribe and leave a five-star review. Those five-star reviews are super helpful. They help with the algorithm and subscribing helps with the algorithm as well. And make sure you visit store.midastouch.com store.midastouch.com for all the best Midas Touch merch and legal AF merch and gear. Let's also talk about this respect for marriage act to codify the constitutional right to same-sex marriage in the Obergefell decision v. Hodges 2015 decision um, and the constitutional right to interracial marriage um, in the Loving v. Virginia Supreme Court case in 1967. Um, why do we have to codify these rights? Because in the decision in Dobbs uh, versus uh, in the uh, Mississippi in the Dobbs Mississippi healthcare case, which overturned Roe v. Wade, the decision based its overturning on really the fact that this case Griswold v. Connecticut, which allowed married couples to purchase contraception, which established this right of privacy, the Supreme Court really attacked that foundational right of privacy because it was from Griswold v. Connecticut, which Roe v. Wade emanated from, and it was from the Roe v. Wade emanating from Griswold, again, the right to contraception, and ultimately the right to uh, same-sex marriage in a Obergefell uh, developed. And really what this says is, sure, the United States Constitution doesn't use the word specifically that you have a constitutional right to privacy. What the Supreme Court basically said is that none of the other constitutional rights against government tyranny, against government intervention, the rights to protect people from that tyranny, none of it makes sense. If there isn't a fundamental right to privacy, how could that not exist in a reading of the Constitution. And so when you read the concurring opinions in the Dobbs decision by people like Clarence Thomas, he goes, no, Griswold should be overturned. Married couples shouldn't have a right to contraception. Oh, and by the way, Obergefell v. Hodges, that was wrongly decided too. We should look at all of our privacy cases and overturn all those federal privacy cases. And so in response to that, Congress said, well, we better codify these rights because if we don't codify the rights, the Supreme Court is going to take those, take those rights away. So we need as Congress to make a federal law so the Supreme Court can't say, you know, oh, you know, there is no federal law, there is no constitutional right, and then, and then take those rights away. So it was introduced in the House. All Democrats voted in favor of it. 
157 Republicans voted against codifying the right to same-sex marriage and interracial marriage. And now we're also hearing from Senator Mark Rubio and other Republicans in the Senate that we're going to vote no. We're going to vote no because we think that this is just a show vote. We don't support those type of votes. I mean, how it's 2022. How despicable can, can you be? And this was absolutely the right move for Democrats to introduce this. I should also mention, which shouldn't just be mentioned in passing, the Democrat Congress voted to codify uh, Roe v. Wade recently as well. And every Democrat voted for it. Every Republican voted against it. And Democrats also introduced a bill that would allow women to cross the border and protect women who cross the border into a state that permits an abortion from a state that doesn't. And all but three Republicans voted against it. Um, Real, real, real scary stuff, Karen. I mean, I'm glad these bills passed. They're on the way to the Senate. It's likely impossible. The Senate's going to filibuster these bills, but how scary, how, how frightening. Well, 40, look, 47 Republicans actually did vote in favor of this bill in the house, which I found heartening a little bit that maybe there's a chance if it was introduced in the Senate, maybe they can bring, you know, this is no longer sort of one of these things like abortion, where I think as a Republican, they have to draw a line in the sand. I mean, I think a lot of people are realizing um, how, you know, how important this is. And, and I think it's becoming very slowly, slightly more bipartisan. Um, I was really upset that the Senate said they're not sure whether they're going to put this to a vote before their recess. Uh, You know, honestly, my feeling when I saw that was what the, what the F cancel your vacation, you know, like, is there a more important thing that you can have that we can codify right now than to ensure the right to same sex that anyone who falls in love and wants to get married can get married regardless of your gender. I mean, what, think about what that would do if it was overruled, what would happen to all the thousands and thousands of hundreds of thousands of of people who've been married and who rely on this and all the families that exist with children who have parents who are married. I mean, and also just for me, the right to marry who you want whether it's interracial or same sex is is about the most fundamental right you can have in this country. So I'm sorry, U.S. senators, don't go on vacation, cancel your vacation, forget your stupid recess and put this to a vote. And I don't know, I I think there's a chance that it, it won't, that it gets past the filibuster. I mean, like I said, 47 Republicans voted in favor of it in the House. So maybe it's starting to cross over a little bit. And maybe there's some people who will say, you know, like Liz Cheney, well, I have a sister or, you know, whatever. And I, I, it, it upsets me that it takes you that you have to know someone to realize that how important this is. But I, I really hope that they, that they put this to a vote um, because you know what? The midterms are right around the corner and it, things might not ever be better than the fact 
than they are right now. The Democrats control both houses and the White House, and it might get worse. I hope it doesn't. I hope it gets better, but it might get worse. And then we're totally screwed. So they have to do everything they can to make this happen right now, in my opinion. I mean, we already, as you said, we already lost Dobbs and the right to an abortion, which you know, and, and all the other things are on the table. You know, Clarence Thomas, it wasn't even a dog whistle in his concurrence. He listed out all of the things that you mentioned, Ben, about bring us those cases because we're going to overrule them. What more do we need to know than to say, okay, let's codify these things ASAP and do absolutely everything we can and, and cancel your vacation. You know, I'm sorry. This is, that's outrageous to me. I agree. I, I want to give this perspective, although I first up, I agree with you. So I agree that I think that they should cancel the, the, the very idea of recess. Americans, uh, someone on, on Twitter, his name is Alfred Fuente. He goes, I, I don't know him. So, but it's, it's the, the tweet is one of the ones that just come up. Americans don't get recess. We barely get vacation. Meanwhile, the nation senators take the entire month of August off and every single holiday without fail, plus lifetime health insurance. Their way of life has nothing to do with the way Americans live and work, which I agree with as an overall sentiment about regardless of who's in control of the Senate. And I think our system has these fundamental problems where we need um, kind of new blood, passionate blood in the Senate who really represent the people generally. It's never a both sides issue. We have a fascist Republican Party, though, and we have a pro-democracy Democrat Party, and we have Democrats who are fighting for these rights and Republicans who are fighting to take away these rights. So that is very, very important. It is also important to know that the recess would end in September, and so it is something they could vote on before the midterm elections. They could vote on it in September. And the Supreme Court is not going to be making any rulings from now until the time they could vote in September. And they have a number of other votes, one regarding semiconductors, one involving health care that's planned. And there's a lot of procedural machinations that, that, that take place that people don't realize with all these ridiculous parliamentary rules to get a bill, even like a health care bill through that immediately can uh, you know, be life or death to certain groups of, of people. That notwithstanding, these laws, these codifying these laws is life or death to, to a lot of people. Um, and you know, respecting the dignity of people is critical and vital. And so if you extend your recess two more weeks to uh, make sure that these bills get a vote, and that's two weeks less of a vacation, but gives people... Um, who are in same-sex marriages, will be in same-sex marriage, who are in interracial marriages, the peace of mind that my government's fighting for me. I think that's something you can take time away from your vacation for, but it's not like they're not going to vote on it. It's just they would vote on it in September before the midterms, and the Supreme Court is not convening again to make any rulings that would take away those rights before then. But I agree, why not, why not pursue this, Karen, with a degree of urgency? in the first place. Um, but that's what's that's what's going on there. Let's finally talk about the January 6th hearing that will be coming up. It's coming up on Thursday, July 21st on prime time. We will be airing it here on the Midas Media Network. I'm so excited to have that broadcast here. I'm I'm pumped 
for this hearing. Um, the two star witnesses, Sarah Matthews, Deputy Press Secretary, Matt Pottinger, Deputy National Security Advisor, both high level people, you know, uh, the highest level people uh, who have really testified uh, to date, arguably, um, both resigned uh, after January 6th. Sarah Matthews was more vocal about it publicly than Matt Pottinger. Um, but it will be interesting to, you know, it'll be interesting to hear what they have to say. But what can you tell us about the hearing? Who's going to be asking the questions, Karen? And what are you looking forward to? So Benny Thompson is not going to be there. Um, he has COVID, but he said the show must go on and proceed without me. Uh, and I think it's going to be a very interesting hearing. I think it was supposed to be the final, uh, the final hearing, right? But I, I don't know that it's going to be the final hearing in um, now that now that more and more people are cooperating, which happens, right? When when people see, I think Cassidy Hutchinson was was somebody who um, came forward and all, the, and then. Pat Cipollone finally agreed to come forward. And I think she was the impetus for that. So I think as more and more people come forward and more and more evidence presents itself, I suspect there'll be more, um, there might be another hearing after this. But what I'm gonna be looking for in this hearing is, is I think they're gonna spend a lot of time putting together those 187 minutes of inaction uh, on the part of Donald Trump. And I think, from a prosecution standpoint, um, that's really key. And, and that's a real significant piece of information that um, I think is important to both the, the two audiences for this hearing, you know, the, the court of public opinion, but also the, the um, investigation of the criminal investigation to sort of see what is possible. Um, you know, I think, I think it's interesting because I was, um, I was, I was actually uh, doing some research for this podcast this morning and yesterday, and I read, um, I, I saw that there are people talking about whether or not Donald Trump could be prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter, which I thought was a really interesting, um, a really interesting question. So involuntary manslaughter is, you know, and there's a federal, um, a federal version of this in 18 USC 1112. And it has to do with if there's a death on federal property. And of course, we know there were five deaths uh, related to the January 6th insurrection. And if it's accidental, um, that's what makes it manslaughter. So if it's accidental caused by negligence or recklessness and here, you know, if, if the, if these five deaths that occurred on federal property were caused by Trump's failure to exercise due care, um, you know, he actually like, unlike the rest of us has an affirmative duty of care. You know, he has to, faithfully execute the laws of his country. He's the commander in chief of the army, um, of the, I should say of the armed services. I mean, you know, he actually has these duties. And so, you know, I think that there's 187 minutes of showing what did he know? What was he told? Or did people come in and say to him, you know, that, um, that they're being violent, that, you know, people, you know, whatever, he's watching TV, he saw the news coverage, that people were saying, calling and saying, there's calls for help, you got to call the 
the National Guard, call in the army, call them off, tweet, do anything, you know, do something. They're listening to you. And, you know, Mr. Ayers, um, that the the guy who testified um, with, uh, you know, he, he was one of the civilian people who testified who has been prosecuted by the Department of Justice for being an insurrectionist. You know, he testified that, you know, he... He's like, look, you know, Trump said come to Washington on January 6th. So he came because his president told him so. And then he says, Trump said march to the Capitol. So he says, so I did because he told me so. And then he said, you know, and, and when Trump finally tweeted and said time to leave, he said that's when we left. You know, he, he not that that excuses it, but that just shows you what was in the mind of the people who were there that day. They were there because Trump told him to go, told them to go, told them to march there. Trump knew they were armed and then left when Trump finally, finally tweeted 187 minutes later, time to go. So I think those 187 minutes about what Trump knew, what was going on and what he was saying, what was his state of mind are going to be critical for both prosecuting him for this involuntary manslaughter, um, as well as what she think is more likely is um, for being an insurrectionist and um, you know, and all the other charges that we've talked about, uh, you know, on the on this show and in past shows that I think he, you know, the, the conspiracy to um, um, to um, the fraudulent election, you know, all, all the different charges we've talked about here. I think I think there's the, the, the involuntary manslaughter was the first time I've heard heard that or, or even thought about that. And I think it's sort of interesting, but I think these 187 minutes are are going to be quite um, quite illustrative of of what of of um, of what of what was in his mind and whether he can be charged with you know conspiracy to defraud the United States, which is you know one of the charges, or aiding or inciting you know the insurrection, which I think is 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 another one they're looking at or whether they're looking at obstruction of an official proceeding, you know, that's another charge. So, so I think those are the four charges that, that, that the department of justice are sort of thinking about if, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump, but I do think these 187 minutes, if they can piece it together, which is why, you know, things like the secret service um, text messages are things you'd want, you know, what are they saying to each other? What are they, what are they saying? You know, the ones that were prote protecting Trump, if anything, about this to each other. You know, they're, they're going to piece this together, hopefully, you know, with as much detail as they can, which will come from both live testimony from people who will be testifying. But it will also be coming from from phone records and text messages and 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 other sort of sources, you know, emails. I don't know. However, however, these people communicated with each other. You know, those those are things that were were communications in real time about what was happening. And of course, we know Trump doesn't didn't or doesn't use any. You know, he doesn't leave any footprints. Or or if he does write something down, he then eats the piece of paper or flushes it down the toilet. Right. Right. Like other than that, he tries to not leave any kind of electronic or paper trail. But all the other people around him. You know, Cassidy Hutchinson, when she, uh, what, what struck me about, about her testimony was every time she went in to talk to Mark Meadows, she described him as, as, you know, looking down at his phone, you know, and the whole time she's talking about how all he's doing is looking down at his phone. Well, 
I want his phone. I want to know who's he texting with, who's he emailing with, what's he doing? And you'll see in real time kind of what's happening and what was happening. So I, I'm, I'm going to be watching this hearing, um, you know, and the fact that it's in prime time, I think this is going to be a good one. And I think it's going to be one not to miss for sure. Do not miss it. Watch day eight of the bombshell January 6th insurrection hearings live. Our coverage on the Midas Touch Network will begin Thursday, July 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. You will get to see the best panel in politics. We have everybody from Karen. We've got Texas Paul. We got politics girl Lee McGowan. We got Bender. We got, of course, Tony Michaels and Gabe Sanchez, who host and produce it. Sometimes we get Michael Cohen to show up. You never know really who's going to show up on that panel, but it's an incredible panel. We really enjoy doing those live um, broadcasts, and uh, they've been doing just as good as most of the mainstream broadcasts out there. It's pretty incredible, and people really seem to like the production quality, and we have our own cameras. Um, in there. And so we definitely appreciate all of your contributions when you um, provide a contribution to the fastest growing independent media company, the Midas Media Network on the YouTube chats that goes a long way to help us because we had to actually buy um, additional time and additional cameras given that uh, these hearings have fortunately um, been so successful and have uh, extended longer than I think we all thought they were going to to be. Um, but uh, we're excited to continue that live coverage again. Make sure you subscribe on both YouTube and on audio wherever you get your podcasts to Legal AF. Um, Karen, it's great spending time with you here today. I guess we both got to go back to work, huh? I mean, when both of us are doing this, uh, like when you do it with Popak, like one of us can be, you know, keep our eyes on the on the firm. But when both of us are doing it, you know, we, I think we both got to go back to go back to work a little bit. But I really enjoy doing this with you. And uh, we'll see. Maybe Popak doesn't do it midweek. Maybe it'll just be the Ben and Karen show, huh? Well, yeah, well, no, Popak, we, we need Popak, you know, Popak with his, his very, you know, he, Popak is like a professor, the way he explained the way he explains things, you know, I, I always learn something from him. So, um, but you know, the one thing I will say, Ben, if to all the people out there who are listening to the podcast, they're going to miss your hat. You know, this is, this is a uh, quite a, a I like the look, I like your new hat. <clears throat> is this the new kind of podcast look, or is this just a summer podcast look? No, this is this is a new look. Generally, me wearing the sombrero. I'm not sure if you see. There's an American flag sombrero right there. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that's something. I was going to say, what's behind you? I noticed it's a new. It's something new from your uh, on your on your podcast background. I noticed that American flag sombrero. One of the things I'm going to do for the. Uh, it's funny because it looks Demo like a McDonald's logo. By the way, this far away, at least from where I'm sitting on on. Oh, don't do don't do my sombrero <laughs> dirty like that, Karen Friedman and Nicola. We had a we had a great, great, great podcast. In any event, thank you everybody for watching the Legal AF podcast with Ben Micellis and Karen Friedman Agniflo. We will see you next time. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.